You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from Discipleship Director Johnny Bell. Roughly 2,000 years ago, there was a man who claimed to be God. He had a message that he was the bearer of good news for the world, and that specifically he would bring peace to the whole earth, and that through his leadership, your life would improve and be blessed. His name? Caesar Augustus. As the emperor of the Romans, he was deified, a man who was also God. His message to the world was the Pax Romana, Latin for Roman peace. He insisted that the world, the neighboring nations, and far beyond did not know how to govern themselves, and that if they submitted to his rule, then he would bring prosperity to their lives. His methodology? Well, of course, the best way to bring peace is through war, so he would bring his peace at the tip of a sword. He would extend his good news by invading neighboring nations, conquering and decimating their land, slaughtering any who opposed him, and then forcefully grafting them into the Roman Empire, and then drafting them into the military to go and bring peace to more nations. The world might not have changed that much in 2,000 years. It was into this context that Jesus of Nazareth was born and conducted his ministry. When Jesus traveled through the towns of the ancient Middle East, spreading the good news, he was making claims that the people had heard before by the propaganda machine of the Roman Empire. Jesus was man, but he was a God. He had good news for all people, and he promised life and life in abundance. His kingdom was one of peace for the whole earth. Jesus even had enemies he was going to conquer the trifecta of enemies, not people, but the enemies of the soul. These are the world, the flesh, and the devil. His methodology, though, was drastically different than the Roman Empire because his methodology was not one of war or a sword. How would he advance his kingdom of peace, joy, and human flourishing? Through the cross. How would he conquer his enemies? not through redemptive violence, but redemptive suffering? How would he bring life and freedom to weary souls? Through his own death. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. So much so that in fact, Jesus' death is not just a one-time event that happened to him 2,000 years ago. It is actually the central methodology for the advancement of his kingdom and the flourishing of his people, you and me. In Jesus, we get the answer to how to defeat the enemies of the soul that we have been looking at over the last five weeks. If you've been around at all, in the last five weeks, Gare has been leading us brilliantly through a series on the traditional biblical enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil and teaching us how these enemies of the soul work together to actually lead us to the destruction of our lives. Jesus shows us a way. Because Jesus' death is the model for how his followers are to live. And Jesus wants you to live. 
He promises life and life abundantly. In John chapter 10, Jesus himself says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, says in John chapter 12, where else can we go? Only in you are the words of life. In Galatians chapter 5, we get a description of the tangible effects of following Jesus, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The Apostle Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament in the book of Philippians, says he has found the secret to being content in any and every circumstance. Is this not what we all want? Abundant life, inner contentment in any circumstance, love, joy, and peace flowing out of our lives. The enemies of the soul will lead us away from this kind of life. But Jesus tells us how to defeat these enemies and get this life. But it requires us to follow him to the cross. Jesus calls his followers to come and die so that they might live. We see this in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 21, we get this beautiful little story. Um, it says this, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must, pay attention to that word, go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must, there it is again, be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. The confidence, absolute confidence. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Whew, confidence popped like a balloon. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good Will it be for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Jesus spells it out for us clear as day in this passage. True abundant life is found on the other side of the death of the self. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is not vague here. Whoever wants to be a disciple must deny themselves. To anyone who wants to save their life, the path to what you want is on the other side of self-denial. Oh, snap, is this shaping up to be a fun sermon or what? <laughs> Over the last week or so, as I've been preparing for this sermon and writing it, I've had a few friends come up to me and they ask me, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And when I tell them, every single one has the exact same response. They say, what are you preaching on? And I say, oh, self-denial in an age of self-fulfillment, and every single person responds with, oh, 
and then they have zero follow-up questions. The topic changes immediately. Why? Because this concept is at absolute odds to the modern movement of Project Self, especially here in my favorite city, LA, which is a temple to self-fulfillment. The unwritten commandments of modern life are to put the self first, follow your feelings or desires, and that it is actually wrong to deny yourself anything. The modern paradigm that we live in is that happiness is found by following your desires and pursuing the self. Built into this paradigm are some assumptions about what leads to a good life. I think there's three of them. They're going to be on the screen. Number one is that nobody should stand in the way of me getting what I want. Two, anybody who does stop me getting what I want is oppressing me. And number three, if I cannot get what I want, then I cannot be happy. And if the third assumption is true, then the other two have to be true. If the only way to be happy is to get what you want, then yes, anyone who gets in your way is oppressing you. Robert Roberts, the scholar, says, we have been led to believe that the self is sacrosanct, just as in earlier times it was thought fitting to never deny God. Now it seems right to never deny one's self. For most of us, if we admit it, we cannot fathom a version of the good life or happiness or abundance that doesn't involve getting what we want. Follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. Just do you. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. This is the orthodoxy of modern life and the supposed path to happiness. The idea of dying to yourself picking up your cross, submitting your life into the hands of Jesus, and that being the path to the good life, it's modern-day heresy. However, I do think there is some merit to the recoiling at this idea. If you're sitting in your seat like, ha, <laughs> I actually kind of get it. I have to acknowledge here that historically, sometimes the church has swung too far into this idea. Self-denial or the death of the self has been taught in such a way sometimes that it makes you feel bad for having a personality and even wanting a good life. You hear a sermon on self-denial and suddenly every desire becomes suspect. Any ambition is idolatry, any fun is frivolous, and any pleasure is sin. At worst, this can actually suck the joy out of life and lead to self-hatred and deep shame and at best, leaves you with two options. Join a monastery or become a missionary. <laughs> now, there's, people, there's monks and nuns and missionaries living wonderful, brilliant lives. However, it's not for all of us. So, if we're going to move forward with this sermon, we must define what Jesus means by deny yourself and lose your life. And how exactly does that lead to the good life. It's important here to understand that Jesus is not asking for the beautiful, unique, and complex miracle that is your soul to die. It is not the death of your personality. It's not the end of you enjoying life, having desires, because desires in and of themselves are not inherently sinful. It's not the death of your hopes and dreams, your inner essence, or your Enneagram type. 
It's not your identity and the complex fabric of biology and mystery that is woven together to make the fabulous image bearers of God that I see before me. Remember, you are a beloved creation of God, a son or daughter of the king with whom he is well pleased. In Genesis 1, when God made human beings, he said that they were very good. This is not the death of you. It is the death of the self. Let me explain what I mean by that. The self is this broken fabrication as a result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Could be described as the meeting point where the devil's deceptive ideas meet with behavior that is normalized by a sinful society, we've defined as the world, and merge with the disordered desires of the flesh to create a worldview and a rule of life that puts you and your desires at the center. The self is in many ways the selfish desires of your heart and their attempts to manufacture happiness by making you the most important thing in the universe. To follow the self is to put your desires in the driving seat of your life. And as we have heard over the last five weeks in this series, our desires are often suspect, disordered, and even unhealthy for us. And even if our desires are not unhealthy, putting them in the driving seat of your life makes you vulnerable to the influence of deceptive ideas which will then be normalized for you by a sinful society. This then will form a lens with which you will view the world, your place in it, and the perceived road to happiness. The self could perhaps be summed up as the internal voice that says, do whatever it takes to get what you want, because getting what you want is essential to having a good life, and everyone else is doing it. God, as a good father who loves you and wants you to flourish wisely and correctly, sees that the world, the flesh, and the devil are working to create a self that is driven by your desires that will actually lead you away from the flourishing that it has promised and will instead lead you to the death of your soul. Putting the self to death is to take your desires, which may not be bad in and of themselves, and put them in their proper place at the feet of Jesus. We cannot afford to let our desires or our self be the ultimate authority in our life. Now I hear you, but Johnny, surely if I'm not hurting anybody, then why can I not do whatever I want? Excellent question, I'm glad you guys asked. I have answers for you, I've prepared. It's a valid question. Here's why letting desire lead yourself will lead to destruction. I have three things. The first is this, human desire is by definition insatiable. And when it leads you, it will prevent you from finding true happiness. Think about it. Whatever our self desires, the big ones, money, sex, power, pleasure, influence, or success, if we get them, we will ultimately find that they are not satisfactory anyway. 
when we pursue these things as the means to our eternal happiness, what we find is an ever-expanding horizon of possibility. Everything I've ever gotten, I have forgotten in place of the next thing I want. Like an oasis in the desert, as soon as we approach it like a phantom, it moves further away. To follow the desires of the flesh and let them lead your life is a lifelong game of carrot and stick. John D. Rockefeller, the oil tycoon, was at one point the richest man in the history of the world. And adjusting for inflation might still be the richest man who has ever lived. And Lord knows, if you have money, the other desires are easy to obtain. If you want sex, power, pleasure, influence, and success, money will get you there. And so John D. Rockefeller, being the richest man in history, was asked by a journalist, how much money is enough? To which he responded, just a little bit more. We all know the feeling of escalating desire and diminishing returns. This is what fuels the porn industry. It's what made me as a child every single Christmas evening feel a deep melancholy as I looked around at all the presents I'd opened, everything I'd ever gotten, and I still felt the same. It's why Tom Brady will never retire. (laughs) He cannot do it. Because the sweetest championship is always the next one. However, as soon as I crucify the self and put my desires in their correct place and no longer see my happiness rooted in what I do not yet have, then I can become thankful for what I already have and my life can be enjoyed in the present. Contentment can only be found when our souls are satisfied in Christ. That's number one. Number two, desire, if it leads you, will put you at war with yourself. When I am led by desire, it puts me at war with myself and those around me. We were made to be interconnected people at peace with ourselves, with each other, and with the world. But when my ultimate goal is to satisfy my desire, then it will break the peace between those things. We see this play out in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve follow their desire to eat the fruit and become like God, and immediately peace is broken. The first thing they do is feel shame with their own bodies and their nakedness, and they hide from each other. The very first moment, the peace within their own body is broken then the peace between their relationship is broken. Then they hide from God and their peace with him is broken. And then within about two minutes, we have them leveraging each other as bargaining chips to protect their own interests when God confronts them. It is Adam who says, God, the woman you gave me made me do it. When we pursue desire as the ultimate source of happiness, we will see all that we do not have and we will not like ourselves for it while leveraging other people as a means to get what we want. This is the feeling of looking in the mirror and not liking your own body because you desire a better one. Now again, it's not wrong to want to improve your body. It's not wrong to work out, be healthy, and be attractive. God bless. However, it will kill your peace 
and put you at war with yourself when having a good body is the means to your happiness. Not to mention futile, because we all get old. It's the feeling of laughing or gossiping at someone else's expense so that you can be perceived as good in comparison to them. This is the feeling of being threatened by someone else's success because if they have more, then you will inevitably have less. However, when we crucify the self and we do not let our desires lead us, we are able to return to a place of being at peace with ourselves and others. I can finally love myself even if I'm imperfect and I can celebrate every success of those around me. Number three, if you let desire lead your life, ultimately it will seek to enslave you. To let the desires lead your life is to put them in the position of king in your heart. And when the self is king, you will be ruled by it. And the self is a terrible king because it will tell you that you have to follow your desire. When I have to do what I desire, then my desires have become my master and I am in slavery to myself. Even the world acknowledges this to be true when it comes to addiction, 12-step programs, AA, and the like. In this small sliver of desire we call addiction, we are able to acknowledge that we can be so consumed with something that it actually becomes destructive in our lives. I would argue, and I think Jesus and the writers of the New Testament would agree, that we are all naturally inclined to be addicted to worshiping ourselves, becoming consumed by our desire and always seeking the next thing that will supposedly make us happy. It's the feeling of not being able to break a habit, not having the willpower to resist something in the moment. It's telling lies to cover up the truth of what happened in darkness. It's found in the moments of knowing that last time you said it was the last time and here you are again. However, when we crucify the self and refuse to let our desires lead us, we are finally able to be free. Free to have or not have, to do or not do, free to make choices with the long term in mind, free to be happy even if I do not get what I want. I think in life, we walk down the path to the death of our own soul, willingly holding hands with the desires that we are enslaved to because we think it's not hurting anyone, so it must not be wrong. Self-denial and the crucifixion of our desires is something that is essential in our apprenticeship to Jesus, to step into faith and to say to Jesus, I will die to myself and trust that what you have on the other side is what's best for me. It's something I am still learning. There's this legend about the Crusades, that the knights in the Crusade, before they went out, would be baptized in full armor. And that when they went under the water, they would hold their swords out and keep them dry. And what is baptism a symbol of? We go under the water to symbolize the death of the old self, and we come out of the water as a symbol of the resurrection of new life with Christ. So to hold the sword out of the water for the knights was to say to Jesus, you get all of me except for this part. 
this part of my old self I would like to bring with me into my new life. This is what we do. We say to Jesus, I want to follow you. I want the good life you promised. But in order for me to be happy, I need to keep control of this part. I need to bring this thing with me or I need to still pursue this desire. Whether it is money, fame, power, success, influence, a political opinion, morality, our sexuality, career, lust, romance, or material possessions, we are brilliant at finding new ways in our life to not trust God with our flourishing and not die to ourselves. As I'm continuing to learn this, I decided I needed to do an inventory of my heart before this sermon. What are the things for me that I hold out? And I found two, which means there's more, but I found two. For me, somewhere in my heart, I've convinced myself that owning a home is an essential part of the good life, and I live in LA. I mean, what am I doing? The concept of home ownership and desiring a home for my family are not wrong in and of themselves. In fact, perfectly normal things to desire. And this desire might even feel superficial and not very vulnerable in the moment. However, there's something in me that says, hey, Johnny, you need a home as a mark of approval that my life has been successful. It is a societal badge of honor that I'm a real adult, that if I want respect, I must be a homeowner. There's something in me that says, you can't raise a family and have kids that are happy and have a good life unless they have a house that's their home. There's something that says you can't host people and make real friendships unless you have a house with a guest bathroom and embroidered hand towels. <laughs> this may seem like foolishness to you. Maybe it's not something you struggle with, but it's a reality for my heart. Owning a home went from a normal desire and a fairly superficial purchase to a deeply rooted idol that represents my need to be approved by others my fears for the long-term health of my family, and my perceived value in society. I also know about myself that the driving force in my life is to impress people. If you know Enneagram types, you can guess what I am. There is a part of my flesh, my heart, myself that says I'm worthless if I cannot impress you. The devil will whisper in my ear that the key to my happiness, therefore, is achievement, and the world reinforces it to me and normalizes a pursuit of celebrity, impressiveness, platform, and elitism. Suddenly, I have enthroned in my heart the need to be impressive and enslave myself to the court of public opinion. And then maybe I start to realize, oh shoot, maybe that's why I'm stressed and jealous and insecure like 50% of the time. <laughs> and it hasn't always been those things for me. If I preached this message at a different point in my life, it would be lust or it would be money or it would be popularity or it would even be romantic love. They have all at some point been the driving force in my life and the supposed keys to happiness. Maybe you have something like this too. And I know you're all like, nope, solid, good, fantastic, doing great, no worries, move on please. Well, before we move on, let's just do a quick checklist, a quick inventory. You can run through these questions through the filter of your own heart. Are you ready? I've got four of them. Number one, is there anything you find hard to celebrate when you see others get it? 
You know, that feeling of like, they got that promotion, they got that house, they got that credit, they got that praise, they got that thing you auditioned for too. And then your comment on their Instagram, yeah, slay queen, wonderful, yeah. It's like semi-sincere. Because really your heart goes, I deserved that. Number two, is there something that you think is essential to your happiness that Jesus didn't have in his life? Number three, are you reaching for the next level of something that you already have as the means to happiness? Let me explain. Was there a time when you said, if I have this amount in the bank account, I'll be happy, and then now you have it? And then you're like, well, if I have this amount, then I'll be happy. Or you said, if I can get this promotion, I'll be happy. But then you got it, and then you're like, yeah, but, well, really, if I got this promotion, I'd be happy. Number four, do I have a desire that my willpower cannot say no to? I think for me, the answer is probably yes to three out of four of those questions. And so God, through the model of the cross, shows us how to be rid of the self and raised to life. Look at how Jesus says it. If we pursue the self, we will lose our soul. Will, not maybe, not there's a chance, not that you run a risk, those who pursue the self will lose the very thing they are trying to get in the first place. But the wonderful good news is this. If we die to the self, we will gain our soul. Not maybe, not there's a chance, not a roll of the dice, not a lottery, but if you take up your cross, deny the self, and follow Jesus into death, you will gain the very thing you are seeking after most. We have to understand that Jesus wants so much more for us than what we want for ourselves. When we choose Jesus instead of the self, the upside is infinitely more than having a house and impressing people. And I may even still get those things, but what Jesus has for me is infinitely more than what I desire. John Mark Comer says it like this in his book, Live No Lies, that goes along with this series. He says, to say yes to Jesus is to say no to living by my own definition of good and evil, to spending my time however I want, to the hyper-individualism, anti-authoritarianism, and full-tilt hedonistic pursuit of our day. Go off, John, come on. <laughs> it's a thousand tiny deaths that all lead up to one massive life. It's not a futile grasping for control, but the freedom of yielding to love. It is saying to Jesus, whatever, wherever, whenever, I'm yours. Do you feel that? Do you have those moments like me lying in bed at night wondering what it will feel like to be happy? Do you get to your birthday each year and feel a melancholy of another year gone and maybe you're running out of time to get it all? Have you scrolled through the infinite and endless annals of Instagram looking at all the things that if you had them, then you'd be happy? 
Have you told yourself on January 1st, this year will be different? This year I'll finally achieve enough? Have you made the Pinterest boards of everything you'll buy when you make it? Do you have the five, 10, 20 year plan of everything that needs to happen for your dream life to come true? And deep down, have you known that none of it will satisfy? I want a soul that is free. I want a mind that is at peace with itself. And I want a heart that is content when I go to bed at night. That is the good life. Jesus tells us the way to get our souls back is through the cross. Because the truth is that the cross is not just something Jesus did for us. It is something we do with him. He didn't just he didn't just die in your place, but he showed you how to die so that you may be resurrected with him. On Palm Sunday today, we are approaching Good Friday and we are journeying with Jesus to the cross and we are also looking forward to a resurrection after. When we follow Jesus to the cross, we are raised with him on the other side so that we can actually be free from the devil's deceptive ideas, the disordered desires of the flesh and the pressures of the world. Life, my friends, is found on the other side of death. Will you stand with me as we pray? Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.